0: We are not going to have a circus here. But well, we just left pleasure for paradise, paradise. Can you please hug me? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do not worry, Dutch is not here today. We, we clearly learned our lesson.
0: These are not ordinary times, and this will not be an ordinary election.
1: You're listening to California Nation. I'm your host, Brian Anderson. Today on the show, we're mixing it up with an expert conversation. Sitting with me now is Paul Mitchell, vice president of the bipartisan voter data firm Political Data Inc. Paul Mitchell, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Did I get the title right? You got the t- exactly right, dead on. That was just from memory. I'm not That's even a- reading off of a script. <gasps> and political consultant, I should note as well. Uh, I was a political consultant. I'm a retired political consultant. I'm a recovering <laughs> consultant. <laughs> so I, w- I want to get to the state of the race in California. But before that, looking at the broader picture, there was this notion that California would be so important when it bumped up its primary from June to March. Some people were more skeptical of that argument than others, but has California gotten the attention it deserves from this or should it have kept its primary a little later, do you think?
2: So first off, the move from June to March was, I think, a known calculation of, okay, in June, there's a gamble that maybe once every four or five or eight cycles, we're gonna be the deciding factor in a big presidential race. So there's that opportunity to be coming in as you know, the the final say. And that had some appeal, it's some romantic idea of California being able to decide an election. Um, moving it up to March basically moves us more into a position where we can cull the field and where California can help decide who's going to make it through to the later stages. And the idea was that California would maybe take the field from I mean, it was some bizarrely large 20. 29 uh, candidates. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) down to, you know, naturally came down to, you know, now we're like five or six. And maybe after California and Super Tuesday, there will only be a few candidates going forward. And so that was a known calculation. Then also the metrics that people use to decide whether or not California matters or the benefit of having a primary, you have different things to different people. So um, one thing could be policy-driven. How much are the candidates talking about issues that are important uniquely to California, whether it's around you know, environmental issues, immigration, but healthcare. care. we haven't seen
1: that. It's not, this hasn't really been a, a, an election about the policy no. issues of different candidates. Maybe no. it's, it's never really been,
2: but. Yeah, so there's, there's that. But then there's also different metrics, like people would say, well, we don't want California just to be an ATM, which is an argument that maybe we want candidates spending money in our state. Well. We've definitely seen that. We've seen more candidates spending more money here than than before in other presidential races by a mile. Um, and then also another way to think about it is how often does uh, how often do the candidates come to California? Like, do they treat California as they're just going to come in for a fundraiser in Beverly Hills and fly out and visit once or twice, or are they going to be here like forever? And and I refer people constantly to your data where you've been collecting on how many presidential trips people candidate made. tracker that we have. We'll yeah. put a
1: link in our show notes.
2: Um, I've uh, referred a lot of reporters and others to that, and I mean at this point it seems like Pete Buttigieg is probably like crashing out on Christopher Gabaldon's couch every month. <laughs> and the West uh, Sacramento
1: mayor for yeah. our listeners. Yeah,
2: and. Um, Uh, You see a lot of candidates coming to California. You see them even going into the Central Valley where I think that there's a valid argument that you get a really great press hit in the Central Valley. Um, And you see uh, kind of this level of activity that we haven't seen before from a field that's larger than what we've seen before. And I think that we can say, at least I would view, that the move to March has paid off in this election cycle in terms of the amount of attention that the state's getting and the role that it'll probably end up playing in terms of helping shape the field. And then we'll have to look to what happens by June. If in June, you know, one or two candidates are split between five delegate spots, then maybe being in June would have been the the optimal place to be. Um, but, you know, we can't just gamble that some years we're going to matter and some years
1: we aren't. So just to throw a little bit of skepticism into some of those points, one thing that we looked at with the presidential tracker, for example, Elizabeth Warren. California's a very liberal, progressive place. She'd theoretically do very well in this state. She hasn't been here in 60 days, and Julian Castro came to Sacramento. He's her top surrogate. And I directly confronted him, and here's what he had to say.
0: Well, look, we're not at Super Tuesday yet, right? Um, And she does take California seriously. The campaign takes California seriously. They have people on the ground here in California, staff members that have been organizing. There's a whole army of volunteers here in California supporting the campaign. Uh, yesterday I saw a lot of those volunteers who are excited about Senator Warren. So I have no doubt that there's tremendous enthusiasm for Senator Warren in California, and that's borne out in the polling. Uh, just a couple of days ago, there's a poll that had her in a strong second place. So. I believe that she can do well here because she's fighting for everyday Americans and she's progressive, that resonates with Californians, but she can also get things done. She's shown a track record of getting things done. That also resonates with Californians who have been frustrated by a Trump administration that seeks to block good things that California wants to do, whether it's to lead on environmental protection or on civil rights or anything else. Can you expect her
1: to be back? Biden?
0: Yes. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to make any announcement for the campaign. I'll let them announce where they're going to be. But.
1: So what do you make of the argument that you can be focused on the Central Valley without actually ever having your candidate there? Because half of the field here has still not visited the Central Valley.
2: Well, um... You know, if you're running a presidential race, I, I think that there's it's really easy to sit in California and look at the presidential campaigns and and think like they should be running more California-focused campaign on how they, you know, some cam- campaigns have been, and some campaigns have not, and I think we have to put ourselves in the shoes of a lot of these national candidates. Um, they don't know if they're going to make it through the first four states, and. Spending time in the Central Valley, focusing on the California primary is great if you're 100% expecting to be in the race by then. But if you feel as though your path to California is through these first four states, then maybe it is hard to kind of make that resource allocation to be kind of all places at once. And being in California is especially tough. Um, So I think that you're just seeing different candidates' strategies play out in different ways. But if you're just to look at how many overall candidate visits in the state? It's multiply you know, multiple times more than we've ever had before. Uh, how much spending has been done in the state? How many consultants? You can't throw a rock in Sacramento without hitting a consultant <laughs> that's been hired by the Bloomberg campaign. Um, you know, by those metrics, you'd have to say that this move up has. Um, increased California's um, role in the primary.
1: And that sort of transitions me well to sort of the early voting process because as these four early states are voting, Californians are already voting, casting ballots as early as as February 3rd and one county even got their ballots mailed to them even before the Iowa caucuses started. Uh, But just for context for our listeners, can you sort of explain what Political Data Inc. is and what you've found so far in this early voting process?
2: So it's interesting because PDI is a voter data company, and like you mentioned earlier, it's bipartisan. And we manage the data for the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the, the, the no you party know, business groups, groups, you know, everybody. We, we do, But we oftentimes you'll see a race, whether it's a local race, a congressional race, a statewide ballot measure, we're providing the data to both sides. Um, so we're kind of this neutral data vendor. Egregator. And as a result, we're able to aggregate a lot of this data and one of the most interesting data points that we've been able to build over time is when people vote. So we collect from the county registrar's lists of people as they return their ballots. There's actually a public benefit to this. If you're receiving mailers and you vote, you might notice that number of mailers starts to decrease because the campaigns have found out that you voted and they're not going to continue to spend money to try to get you to turn out and vote or persuade you and so campaigns need the data as to who's voted to kind of reduce their targeting.
1: So what are you seeing right now as far as how many people have cast ballots and at what different stages? So
2: I mean we first off we projected based on our prior vote history that five percent of voters were going to cast ballots by the time of the uh, by the time we knew the New Hampshire results. And that actually played out, that if you look at the Democrat, likely Democratic electorate, we hit about 5% uh, at, the, uh, at the point when New Hampshire had, uh, had voted. Then we projected that by the time we saw Nevada voting and saw the results of that caucus, that we'd be at about, 20, about 25% of the total votes cast having been mailed and by the time we get to South Carolina, which is this weekend, that we'd be at about 40%. And we've seen that roughly hold true. We have, uh, you know, pretty quickly gone from a million to two million and now headed to three million ballots that have been returned. And a lot of that early vote has come from people who are regular early voters. I think voting has become like ritualistic. And it's tactile. It's a thing that you do. And some people do it at their kitchen counter the minute the ballot comes. You were some telling people me you it,
1: like it on election day so you can get the little sticker.
2: I like it on election day also because I take my daughter. Yeah. So every election, my daughter and I, we get on their bikes and we ride our bikes to the polling place. And we turn in the ballot together. And and so for for us, it's a, it's a I'm always going to vote late. And it's always going to remind me of voting with my daughter. And um, so people are in these buckets. Now, there is one interesting thing in the data that I have noticed, and I've been communicating this to some of the campaigns, and I'll, uh, I'll probably do some, a little deeper dive in this, but there are some people holding onto their ballots. And when you look at the data and you look deep in the data, you can see a lot of these voters that have voted in every primary. And they're Democrats that have voted in every primary, and they're older, and they're turning in their ballots at a lower rate than in previous primaries. Now, if I had an infrequent voter turning in their ballots at lower rates, I'd say it's probably going just to be low process. turnout. It's really but if it's a, somebody who's always turned in their ballot early and that in 2016 this population was already 35% turnout, and this election cycle they're only 19% turnout, then I think, aha, this is a population of voters that are going to vote. We know that. They're just voting later because they're trying to figure out which candidates are going to be viable? What's going to happen in the debate? What's going to happen in South Carolina and the voting? Um, you know, uh, is maybe there going to be some polarization among those candidates that are the not Bernie Sanders candid- candidates as to kind of who's going to be taking the lead? Um, so, uh, so
1: Democrats are voting later in this process.
2: These super high engaged Loyal older yeah. Democrats. Now, the um, we still see huge numbers of voters that are just voting because they got the ballot, they sure. vote early, and that's what's happening. And campaigns have to know how to organize around that data too.
1: Which campaigns are working with uh, Political Data Inc? I know Mike Bloomberg is, but which other ones?
2: Um, we generally don't name our clients, but I will tell you that um, we did provide data to uh, through the DNC's clearinghouse. So in a way, all campaigns are having access to some PDI data. Um, but, uh, you know, we let, there'll be campaign finance reports and people How about a number,
1: Paul, a number? Five campaigns, the, six the campaigns, six best campaigns
2: are using oh, California, using PDI data. <laughs> the, the smartest campaigns are using PDI data. <laughs> the ones who uh, can have the most forethought, hire the right California staff and be engaged.
1: And there is a concern from the top candidate here in California for Bernie Sanders, where he said, uh, he's said, he's basically made Twitter videos and actually come to this state to encourage no party preference voters to request a Democratic ballot. And we talked earlier and, and you were talking about how this could be a, a monumental concern. How often do you see a presidential candidate talking about the intricacies of California's voting process? What's the concern for the Sanders campaign right now with these this lack of no party preference voters? submitting their ballot requests.
2: Well, I'll tell you, it's very interesting because the Sanders campaign is running a campaign like somebody who is lost here before, to put it frankly. Um, and I think that in the last election cycle, he noticed in 2016 that a lot of these independents that weren't voting were actually his voters. And so now fast forward to this election cycle, that campaign came out of the gate, recognizing that there's a huge number of independent voters in the state, over 4 million. And um, actually, let me restate that, there's a a huge number of nonpartisan voters that are getting mailed ballots. Over four million are getting mailed ballots. And those voters have to request a Democratic ballot. And as we did analysis, we saw that only 8% of them requested a Democratic ballot in, or in time for that first ballot they received from the county registrar to have the Democratic candidates on it. Which is an absolutely horrible number. It's amazing. 92% of nonpartisan voters got ballots that had no presidential race on it, even though they have a right to participate in the Democratic primary. It's inched up a little bit. Now 9% of the independent <laughs> voters have Democratic ballots. In 2016, it was 15%, but there were a lot less of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're a campaign, let's say you're a campaign that is appealing to uh, white, high-educated, suburban women, like Elizabeth Warren's campaign. You need to get those that are registered independent the proper ballot so they can actually vote for you. If you're a campaign that's that's doing really well among Latinos and young voters, like the Sanders campaign, you need to get them the right ballot. If you're a candidate who does well among you know more conservative rural white voters, like a Biden or a Buttigieg, um, or LGBT voters, uh, especially older LGBT voters like Buttigieg, then you have the data at your fingertips.
1: I gotta be honest, you got me dozing off because of just how complicated (laughs) and horrible this process must be for these campaigns.
2: Well, it's a challenge because it's hard. Anybody who runs a campaign knows it's hard to get somebody to turn out and vote. Now, imagine how hard it is to get somebody to understand that they have a ballot in their house to not vote but then to request a new ballot, to wait for that ballot, and then when they get that new ballot to vote, or to just take that ballot to a polling place. Like it is so hard, or or vote center. (laughs) It is so hard. It is such a monumental lift to tell somebody, not just to get out and vote, which is already hard, but to take this extra process steps. And so it was amazing for me as a kind of an election nerd to see a candidate for president to come out and talk and take time from his own speech, not to talk about the revolution, not to talk about healthcare for all, but to talk about a process in elections of how you obtain a democratic ballot, which you know six months ago, most even political consultants couldn't have told you how to do it. And here's Bernie Sanders out there using time in a press conference to announce it.
1: Here
0: in California, voting has already started and there is a concern that many Californians do not have all of the information
1: they need uh, to participate in the presidential primary. Yet many NPP voters do not know that they need to request a Democratic Party crossover ballot in order to participate in the Democratic primary. So what I'm hearing from you is maybe Bernie Sanders is gonna have a, a rougher election night than people might expect.
2: Well, it depends. If you're looking at polling that is overestimating the the, the um, engagement by independents, especially younger independents, then yeah, it might not be as uh, as great a night for him. But you know, I think the data right now suggests that he has a strong lead even among the all other populations. So you know, even if we didn't have independents voting, he probably would still win California based on the polling that we've seen so far. Um, with independents and more independence, he could get a greater delegate lead or he could be in a position where he's you know, the only one that gets statewide delegates.
1: And we can announce here for the first time, the Sacramento Bee is having a, sort of an election night show that I'll be hosting at 6, 8.30, and 10 p.m. For listeners who want to tune in on election night, they can go to sacbee.com or, or see it on YouTube. Once those initial wave of results come in at 8 p.m., what does Paul Mitchell say people should be skeptical about? Because... I know there's going to be a lot of people who will say hundred percent of precincts reporting great it's over (laughs) yeah tell me why that's not true
2: so um our votes come in basically in these buckets not literal buckets but in these tranches the first one is everybody is voting by mail right now the millions of ballots that have currently come into the county registrar have been scanned in have been signature verified and are ready to be tallied those votes will be going up at, at 8.01 p.m. on election night we call them the 801s and you'll see the results you know two million votes cast zero percent of precincts reporting that tells you this is all just early vote by males and that early vote by mail population is often older more conservative uh you know higher socioeconomic status than the overall electorate so that first number represents a more conservative electorate so if you see that first number and bernie sanders is winning then it's off to the races, like this thing's over. If you see that first number and maybe Bloomberg and Biden are high and Buttigieg is high, then you could say, okay, we might be in for a long night here trying to figure this out. Um, then you're gonna start to see precincts come in. These are the people who physically voted at a local voting center or precinct location and actually did it right there you know, manually. Those votes are pretty easy to count because you don't have to signature verify all of them. They're all legitimate votes, they just get tallied and posted all throughout the night and into Wednesday morning, so that's the second wave. Then we have this long slog. My ballot that I went and took with my daughter to vote, it, you know, drop it off in the little box. That ballot still still needs to be signature verified and opened, so that ballot might be counted by Friday. My, that ballot
1: might be counted by next Monday. And votes in California, as long as they're postmarked by March, yeah. 3rd so count, then you've got- so you can receive them three days after election yeah. day.
2: So even after you're done counting these ballots that were dropped off or even mailed in, like on Monday and Tuesday, you can receive, the county can receive a ballot that's been mailed in up until Friday, mm-hmm. or if the ballot was received by another county registrar, which actually happens in parts of the state, like in Santa Clara, they'll get a bunch of Santa Cruz County ballots, sure. you know, just accidentally. Those can be transferred between counties and and there's a time frame for that. And then uh, when, uh, Ballots have a mismatched signature, a problem with the signature. They allow the people to f- fill out a postcard to fix the signature. If um, So we're talking
1: about a weeks-long process here.
2: Month-long process, it's, you so know.
1: results are certified April 10th, one yeah, month so, and seven days after election day. Yeah,
2: so one month after, we'll, even before they're per- actually certified, we'll know the final vote results from each county and we can tally it up. Um, but what's interesting is that election night is when the balloons drop. It's when CNN and all the big networks say so and so won this state. It's when somebody gets that momentum to go to Florida or Michigan or other states that are having their primaries and later in March and in April. It's that momentum, it's that big fundraising hit, it's that defining moment in the race. And if somebody wins in California on election night, um, if it's honestly if it's Sanders who wins on election night, his lead will probably only grow with later votes unless something different happens, but his, his lead in 2016, he actually beat Hillary Clinton with the late ballots and his, his lead, uh, his loss narrowed to, uh, he gained four points on Hillary Clinton in the late voting. So you would expect that everything else being equal, that a candidate that's more progressive, appealing to younger voters, is going to improve their polling or their vote share as it goes through. But somebody, if let's say, a cons- more conservative candidate or a Bloomberg or a Biden or a Buttigieg is the winner on election night in California, we might be holding on to watch those votes get tallied for the ne- rest of the month.
1: And there's two sorts of, of different meanings of how you win. There's the narrative, the, yeah. the media momentum, and then there's the actual delegates. Yeah. So and if you win the actual delegates, there's no, like, let's say you you
2: lose on election night and then you win the delegates, there's no refunds. You don't get to, like, go back in time and get that momentum that some other candidate got. That other candidate will go run to fundraising and and run to the other states and benefit from that early perceived victory. And
1: as we record this podcast, we're still waiting on a recount from the results of Iowa, where it's very possible Bernie Sanders could overtake Pete Buttigieg for... For and state delegate cares. equivalents, and you know, no and didn't one cares. Santorum
2: win Iowa as well, and nobody against knew Mitt it? Romney,
1: and Mitt Romney was getting the bump after. So, yeah. so I, the only other thing I kind of want to get at is uh, election night and what people should be watching for. Uh, and there's this 15 percent threshold. That's what you need to get a, a delegate in a congressional district or at the statewide level and this is a very fractured field of candidates right now and still a relatively large number of candidates still in this race. How do you see that affecting this 15% threshold?
2: It's a big deal. I mean, if we only had two candidates in the race, we would know that both of them are gonna get statewide delegates and it's gonna go pretty proportionally. And both of them will probably get delegates in every congressional district and it'll just be proportional. And it mutes the impact of that kind of an outcome. With the, um, with the 15% rule, it can actually, you can win 30%, let's say, of the vote, and you might get two, two delegates in a congressional district because everybody else gets over 15%. But if you get 30% and nobody else gets 15%, you might get all seven delegates. Right. So your ability to hit 30%, uh, it does relate to your ability to get delegates, but it also, what percentage the other candidates get can determine whether or not you get all the delegates or just one or two so um, the delegate math is really interesting and and uh, you know really getting to that 15 percent is the most important thing um, because then after after that you don't really have control over if you're going to be getting all the delegates or splitting it up evenly it really has to do with how the other candidates perform Um, if somebody was to get all of the statewide delegates that would be pretty incredible
1: and a PPIC poll should note at plenty of time and things are within the margin of error but Bernie Sanders was the only one above 15% statewide mm-hmm. and that's 144 delegates that could theoretically all go to him albeit a lot of things can change over the course of a month before Election Day but yeah that's that's just one very big deal
2: and if somebody gets that kind of a big statewide thing then that's probably going to translate down to the congressional districts like the way the math looks is that if somebody gets to, say, 8% 8 to 11% statewide, there probably are pockets of the state where they're hitting that 15% mark, just kind of naturally the natural allocation of, of uh, these votes into the districts. Um, but if, if somebody does get 40%, 42%, they might they'll definitely get all the statewide delegates if they got that kind of a number. I would guess they'd most likely get all the statewide delegates with the way the field's laid out right now. And they could completely dominate in a bunch of congressional districts where they, you know, blank out all the other candidates. And um, that kind of result could set one candidate on a path to locking up the nomination um, because California's just so huge. California has a quarter of the delegates you need to win the nomination.
1: Yeah, 494 delegates. You need 1991 to win. But Paul, I want to end one prediction. You can take it anywhere you you want. Give me one prediction for something that you expect to happen that people should know.
2: Oh, my lord. Um, Fortunately, you can edit this, the long pause. (laughs) The pause is staying in there. That shows the thoughtfulness. Um, it's the grasping at at things Um, I think the one prediction is kind of a process prediction and that is that there are going to be um, long lines at a lot of these college campuses and a lot of places where young people live um, people that are confused about their ballots angry about not having the right candidates on their ballots needing replacement ballots doing same-day registration I think that there's gonna be um, you know, a large and 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 you know a lot of media attention around the that process piece, especially in places like L.A. County, Orange County, um, and even in the Bay Area. Um, and we'll see what happens with this independent voter population. But I think you're going to have a lot of independent voters who, right now, expect that that ballot they have on their kitchen counter has a Democratic candidates on it and a lot, of, uh, a lot of frustration with the process when they realize they can't vote for the candidate they want to.
1: So chaos, confusion, and long lines. I appreciate that. <laughs> Absolutely, it's a reporter's delight. <laughs> so Paul, thanks so much for taking the time. It was great having you. Thank you for having me. And you're listening to California Nation. Just a reminder, on election night through YouTube and our website, SACB.com, we'll have live streams available at 6 p.m., 8.30 p.m., and 10 p.m. So make sure to tune in for that. Until next time, I'm Brian Anderson. This is California Nation.